Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you this morning for your goodness, for your care over us. We pray, Father, that you would set aside in our minds those things that would draw us away from your word applied to us, to our lives. We pray that, uh, Father, we would sense your imminence as well as your transcendence this morning. We pray that we would see your word as that which is perfectly applicable to our lives right now at this moment. And we pray, Father, that we would receive a timely message this morning from you through your prophet Obadiah. We praise you, Lord, for your forgiveness that you offer to us through Christ. And we pray that you would grant that we would have hearts that are changed and turned to you in that way. In Christ's name, amen. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's uh, a short 21 verses, the entire book here. And primarily it has a few themes uh, that we would draw out and we would see as the Lord sweeps through the Bible as he reveals really his, as what we're calling the progress of redemption, what it is that the Lord is teaching us in uh, the different books of the Bible. We see here a number of themes that we have uh, looked at uh, in some depth before. One of those themes is the peril of trusting in something other than God. The perils of trusting in something other than God. We see that, of course, is applied here to Israel as well as Edom. Also, uh, this idea that the root sin of this trusting in things other than God is that of pride. The root sin of pride. And we see pride popping up everywhere. Um, It is uh, very formidable. Uh, There are many tentacles of this sin of pride that... uh, may catch us unawares. Uh, Some of them are more obvious than others, but nonetheless, it certainly is the root sin of this idea of trusting in something other than God for ultimate security. And then lastly, we see here a promise of restoration. Uh, And that is also a common theme in the Old Testament, as well as the New, this idea that God does promise a restoration, even though There are horrible calamities that come about because of the sinfulness of mankind and what they do to one another. We also see that uh, the prophet Obadiah addresses the horizontal sins of the people. In other words, the sins of one against the other. Uh, Often, we may be inclined to think that God is only interested in those sins against him, primarily the first four uh, commandments in the Ten Commandments, the the first table of the law, if you will. But what we see is that God is particularly interested also in those sins of one against another. And there is uh, retribution that comes from that. Um, And so we we can't be sure that our sin will find us out. Um, And uh, even to the redeemed, uh, there's no promise of a removal of consequences of our sinfulness. Though we are with the Lord, though He will, of course, keep us Uh, from the horrors of hell. Nonetheless, our sins have consequences, and we see that here in this book of Obadiah. Perhaps uh, an illustration from really the First and Second World Wars might help you understand this idea of security. One of the things that we see uh, in this passage in Obadiah, first of all, let me let me just say that Edom, so Edom is uh, where the the uh, the followers or the, those that followed Esau. So you'll recall that uh, that Jacob had uh, two sons, or excuse me, that um, 
Jacob had a brother, Jacob and Esau. One followed God, the other didn't. The descendants of Esau were Edomites. And uh, perhaps the, the most infamous Edomite would be Herod the Great, the one who was certainly involved in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, the Edomites rejected God. But they made an alliance with Babylon. And while they should have made an alliance with Israel, they made an alliance with Babylon... And they entrusted themselves not only to the faulty, shaky alliance with Babylon, but also they uh, entrusted themselves to where they lived. In verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? And so one of the things we see here about Edom is that they trusted that they were safe, that they were secure because of the geography of where it was that they lived, because of the fact that they lived in the mountains. And I'm drawn to uh, an illustration from World War I and II, um, and that is the Maginot Line in France. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the Maginot Line, but between 1929 and 1939, the French decided uh, that they didn't want uh, to be hampered by Germany any longer after World War I, and so they built a 943-mile-long line. Uh, The most formidable fortress of that line was along the border of France and Germany, Uh, But nonetheless, there was an entire line of of concrete encasements, of machine guns, of tank encasements, and all of those things that were set up, and that was called the Maginot Line. And when Germany began to take Europe, the French were very confident in the Maginot Line. But the Germans went around the Maginot Line, and they, as you are aware, partitioned France in two weeks. And so, nonetheless, we see that it's a, it's a magnificent illustration of trusting in something that they should have never trusted in. Now, let me be clear. When we begin to talk about trusting in something other than God, it might incline us to have a rather sarcastic view of trusting in other people. Or, for instance, it may have it may incline us to have a sarcastic view of even preparing, as I referred to in France, preparing for war. The implication that we should trust God alone is not the idea that we no longer, as the psalmist says, prepare the horse for the day of battle. But the victory is the Lord's. And so there's this idea that for our For our security, we have entrusted ourselves to God. And that does come out, and we see that in the relationship between Edom and Israel. We see that that can certainly be expressed in national and international alliances. That's true for our own nation. Uh, But also, uh, we see that ultimately our trust has to be in God, the sovereign king and ruler of the universe. And that we'll do no better than to follow Him and to apply the principles that He gives to us in His Scripture as we make daily decisions, individually as well as in a nation. Obadiah also is an interesting book because it was written primarily to unbelievers. And Obadiah may be the only book in the Bible that was actually specifically written 
to unbelievers. It was directed at Edom, at the nation of Edom. The nation of Edom was no, they did not follow God. But nonetheless, the imposition of the commands of God and the rightness of the alliances that they made internationally were certainly uh, moral decisions. And so this is one of the things that's brought about in the book. And so let's take this uh, verse by verse here. We begin really with the first nine verses. And what we see here is that God calls the nations to destroy Edom. The Bible says in verse 1, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, that is Edom. You shall be utterly despised. What we see here is that the pride of Edom has deceived her. Her dwelling among the mountains has led her to believe herself impregnable. They smugly made policy decisions internationally, and those policy decisions were faulty at best with Babylon. And so what God is telling them through the prophet Obadiah is that those alliances will fail, They will let them down. Uh, Their idea that they will be saved because of their lofty location in the mountains, that will also fail. Uh, And we see that they will be destroyed. God himself is bringing restitution for the sinfulness of Edom. Verse 7, Your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Again, their allegiance with Babylon led them to act wickedly against their Israelite brothers. But they've been fooled because Babylon will not keep her promises of safety. As we look on, we see here the horrifying destruction that is brought, the judgment of God. Verse 8, Here will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau. And your mighty men shall be dismayed so that every man from Mount Esau shall be cut off by slaughter. says in verse 10, other reasons why God is bringing judgment to Edom here, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So again, there are a number of references here, uh, Esau and Jacob, referring again to the two brothers, one who would follow God, Jacob, one who didn't, Esau. The people of Esau are the Edomites. The people of Jacob are the Israelites. And it, of course, was always appropriate to be faithful with God's people. And what we see here in verses 11 through 14 
is what it is that the Edomites did to the Israelites as Babylon attacked them. So as Babylon, what happened is Babylon attacked Israel, and as the Israelites fled Jerusalem, the Edomites captured them and sold them to Babylon. And so the the only place of safety they had was on the roads leaving, and the Edomites waited for them on those roads, gathered them up, and carried them to the Babylonians. And this was, uh, of course, something that uh, they will pay dearly for. Verse 12, Do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Verse 13, Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster. Verse 14, Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. And these are what what Obadiah has been sent by the Lord to tell Edom, and of course to inform us as well, is that uh, you know what we have here is, first of all, the fact that Trusting in other things besides God will always let them down. And that the the central foundation of this false trust is the sin of pride that is pervasive. Absolutely pervasive. The Bible says in Luke 14.11, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 6, but he gives great gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so this is the situation. Again, we look at we look at Edom, we look at those those descendants of Esau, we look at the descendants of Jacob. We see that he is dealing with their horizontal sins, one against another. We see that he deals with their vertical sins, their sins against God. Uh, We see that there is this underlayment uh, of the sin of pride. And then in verses 19 to 21, we see this promise of restoration. Yes, there was an exile, and this is... um, this is an intermittent restoration as, as when we see the children of God, when they were left exile, they came back, rebuilt the temple and so forth. We have some references to this idea here, but also, of course, it's projected into this ultimate uh, you know, restoration that God would bring to his people in heaven, those who are redeemed. There are a few important truths that we could apply here, and let's consider them. One important truth is this idea that God is the universal king and may do what he wishes with the nations. And we see that. This was often a question of Israel and Judah. They lamented uh, and were very burdened by this idea that God would bring ungodly nations to bring judgment to them, and they—that was uh, a great source of consternation for Israel and Judah. That God would do that to them, and uh, we see that 
we see that God's people in those days, Israel and Judah, they seem to only respond and turn to God in these calamitous times when he brought destruction and judgment upon them. But the reality is this, God is the universal king, and he may do what he wishes with nations. And one of the things we see here as well is this idea of a meta-narrative in, in the Bible, a meta-narrative to all of history. Now, let's think about this term, meta-narrative. This, the idea simply is that God has a comprehensive plan in the universe. And that plan is, is marked off day after day after day. And God is in complete molecular control of every single thing that occurs. And the Bible even says in Isaiah that he whistles for a nation. And it comes. He says the nations are as a drop in a bucket regarding the sovereign power and will in the way that God uses the nations for his own purposes of glory and redemption. There is a meta narrative to all of history. And this is, again, this is an important idea. All things are working to the glory of God for that final day when it will be revealed that the Lord Jesus Christ is the King of all kings, when every knee will bow, even those knees that would rather not because they're unredeemed. And so this is an idea. We could consider, for instance, Isaiah chapter 5. In verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. And we could, we could go on here and we could understand In verse 26, for instance, in Isaiah 5, He will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily, they come. This idea that God watches over the nations and He watches over us as individuals. And He is particularly interested in what it is that we do, how we act, what we're thinking. And He is particularly involved in Again, his work in the context of this meta narrative. The Bible says in Psalm 75 7, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. You, you perhaps, if you pay any attention at all to the political scene in our own nation or to our political history, you might wonder how it is that. One is elected and the other isn't. Or how it is that uh, the force and the flow of our nation goes one way and not the other. And you can have all kinds of explanations and see causes and effects for those things. But one of the things we know for certain is that God is the one that sets down one and raises up another. And even here in this passage of Scripture, we can see, for instance... In verse 8, 
Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? Now, by the grace of God, God renews our mind in Christ. And by the grace of God, I trust that we... uh, are not in some utter lack of rational reality when we look at things in accordance with the principles of the Word of God. And as we do that, we look around and we we wonder, how could people think like that? How could they make decisions in that way? How can they approve of these things? And one of the things that we see here in Obadiah is for a certain, we should understand that this is the judgment of God. The judgment of God isn't something that's in the future. It's something that's right now as well. It is reasonable for you to ask the question, where are the men of understanding? It seems that they used to be around and they're not here anymore. Where is the rational thinker? Right? <clears throat> By the grace of God, we aren't completely devoid of that, but what we understand is that this is an aspect of God's judgment, of God's power, of His purpose, of His plan, of His desire to shed away those things that we would falsely trust in not because of the goodness of those who are wise and those who can help us understand, but because we have refused the ways of God and that He will bring calamity and judgment because of it. Proverbs 8.15 says, By me kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles all who judge rightly. I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. We see here, additionally, that God's power isn't solely transcendent and otherworldly, but also it is imminent coming into human history. We may seem that God is far away, right? But these aspects of judgment... That we can see in our own day, in our own world, we should see that that is a breaking in, if you will, of the imminent power of God into our human history. He's concerned himself not only with the sins of man against man, but to encourage us in these promises of restoration that we have reason to keep on, to press on. We see here that it will not go well for those who stand against the eternal king. (coughs) Verses 5 through 7, for instance, indicate that all will be lost. Verse 5, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? And what the point that Obadiah is making here 
is that when a thief comes, he leaves something. He doesn't remove everything from your home, more than likely. But what God is telling the Edomites to Obadiah is, when those people come and raid you, there will be nothing left. There will be nothing left. It's a complete expression of the judgment of God. Edom's desperate association with Babylon is a covenant that will not be kept. Verse 7, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. And then we have, of course, ultimately at the end of the book here, the, the promise of restoration. And we should see here that Israel is restored, not because of her actions, but because of the grace of God in keeping His covenant. And their righteous actions would have gained the continuance of joyful fellowship with God in the challenges of their day. It would not be accurate to insist that since they were restored, they lost nothing. And this is also an issue that would be important for us when we consider the multiplied promises of God's restoration, particularly when we look at the people of God who are horribly sinful and sin day after day after day. And when we think about God's promises of restoration, even when we think about ultimately God's ultimate promise of restoration, to draw all of those who uh, are the redeemed into the eternal new heavens and new earth, and we say, see, it didn't matter all will be restored. And that would be, that would be a horrible understanding of what it is that God is doing. For me to embrace this idea of restoration and say, look, look, it didn't matter what I did. Well, does fellowship with Christ day by day matter? The reality is, is that the Israelites as well as the Edomites had before them an opportunity to walk in fellowship with the true God. Yes, he promised restoration. Yes, it would never be because of their actions, but their actions were directly related to their ability to enjoy fellowship with God. And they completely rejected that altogether. We're not purchasing for ourselves restoration, but our own actions, our own holiness and growth and holiness and righteousness and our own desire to grow in our dependence upon God will result in a deeper fellowship with God. It's inevitable that it be that way. It is the promise of God that brings it about. And this restoration, as we see, will be partially fulfilled after the exile, but also ultimately with the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 17, for instance, In Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. This is another common theme that we see, of course, in the Scriptures. This idea of holiness, the idea that God doesn't save us for nothing. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. So we could ask ourselves the question, Are you becoming holy? Are you becoming holy? 
The Bible indicates that we've all been God's enemies. We've all been God's enemies. Do you remain an enemy of God? I mean, in the common understanding, the common wrong, unbiblical understanding that many evangelicals have uh, is that there is no consequence of sin, that God loves everyone uh, and has a wonderful plan for their lives uh, and that it doesn't matter. He's there to give you things uh, and it doesn't matter what you do and he could never, uh, you could never be an enemy of God. But that is an utterly unbiblical idea. We're enemies of God until we have the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ laid upon us. And so this is one of the ideas, of course, that comes about in the book of Obadiah. Are, do we remain enemies of God? The enemies of God are going to be cast into hell. And that's a horrible, eternal place. But nonetheless, it's the consequence, the right and just consequence for our sins against God that are yet un forgiven outside of Christ. Now let's consider a few applications. First, how does pride lead to placing our trust in something other than God? How does pride lead to placing our trust in something other than God? And let me state again, the point here isn't uh, that you should now have a sarcastic view of trusting other people. The, the point isn't that, uh, that it's, it's, this is only you and Jesus. That's not, that's not the point in finding and insisting on a security that is in God alone. It's obviously an appropriate security in an appropriate place. For instance, we may think we know God, what God would have us do, though not having sincerely invested time in His Word, prayer, and biblically directed discussion with others, we're expressing pride in our own understanding. Again, the question, how does pride lead to placing our trust in something other than God? Well, as I've mentioned before, one of the unique sins of Texans is their confidence. Sometimes they're right. But a lot of times they don't care if they're right or not. They're always confident in the process. And that's is very often an expression of placing our trust in something other than God. We haven't invested ourselves in what it is that God has revealed in His Word, what it is that can be, again, more deeply understood in fellowship with God's people. We march off insisting that we have an idea, and often we bring those ideas to the Bible, and we insert our ideas, and we read the Scriptures to affirm what we think. And that is to place a security in ourselves and not God. We may not ultimately care what God says about a certain thing or express that sentiment by not considering Him in a matter. Second question, what is your Maginot line? What have you worked hard at over the last several years of your life that you think will provide peace and security? 
We should be a people who work long and hard for a long-term goal. That's a very good thing. But we should also be a people who recognize that our ultimate security isn't in that thing. Right? That thing can be a very good thing. Perhaps it's the building of a family, the building of a home. It's studying a course of curriculum over a long period of time, learning a musical instrument, for instance, studying uh, certain things about the scriptures, uh, learning a skill and so forth. These are all very, very good things. Old people should plant trees. And they should read books about things they don't know anything about and learn. As should the young people. But God doesn't owe you something because you enter into what is an absolutely normal routine for people who have been blood-bought and redeemed by Christ. How can we truly rest in the peace and security that Christ offers us? Thirdly, history demonstrates that every great power passes. Well, the way Christians identify themselves with their faith and their churches differ from the way they identify themselves with their country. What will be the peculiar challenges for Christian citizens of a nation with a large role on the world stage? What will be the peculiar challenges for Christian citizens of a nation with a minor role or no role on the world stage? It won't shock you to realize that a bit of our public policy is based on some very poor theology. Some of our international agreements, some of our long-term commitments have been centered and founded on very faulty theology and philosophy. But nonetheless, God calls us, as he did Israel and Edom, to be faithful citizens under God. And that is no less true of us. Honorable, robust citizenship is not incompatible with active saving faith, though it may be deemed that way by some. The reality is, trusting God frees us up to selflessly serve. The key to fellowship with God and His people is this selfless service. For our own nation, it may be helpful to transition our thinking from focusing primarily on rights we enjoy to duties we're obligated to fulfill because of our citizenship. Just this one cultural issue is very important, and it's particularly important and appropriate to consider its biblical connotations. What I'm saying is this. We are likely inclined in this culture to think of our own national citizenship as primarily a collection of rights. Of rights. What we are owed. And my proposition to you, confirmed over a number of generations of history, 
is that that is a very culturally different place than we were in, say, 80 years ago or 100 years ago. When the prevailing understanding and the sensitivity of our national citizenship didn't have to do with rights, but it had to do with duties. What is it that I owe my nation? What is it that I owe my nation? And make no misunderstanding, your own involvement in the fellowship of Christ will absolutely be impacted by your understanding and the cultural cables, if you will, of what it is and how you view your own involvement in your family, in your nation, in your church, and so forth. Is it about what you get Or is it about how you serve? And one of the things we know with absolute certainty, as the Lord Jesus Christ said Himself, and the Apostle Paul said the same thing that uh, we looked into last week with Colossians and Philippians as well, is this concept that we can ultimately only grow in our fellowship with Christ when we enter into the fellowship of His service of His sufferings. But that is so far away from this cultural moment in our own mentality that it's very hard for us to break away from this idea. When everyone around is bent into themselves, it's hard to prioritize selfless service. And this has a lot to do with your security in Christ. Our own nation just marked the 79th anniversary of the D-Day invasion on June 6th. Tuesday. The D-Day invasion. June 6th, 1944. 29,000 people, Americans, died that day. And they lived in a culture that understood that life, primarily, was about serving other people. That life was primarily about serving other people. It wasn't about what I can get in life. It wasn't about taking full advantage of this utterly ridiculous cultural moment that we're in right now that will be recorded as the age of absurdity. But we're we're so drawn into this cultural idea that life is about me. It's about likes on Facebook. It's about the pictures that people see me doing. It's about all of this stuff. And again, the point here is that our God is involved in a meta-narrative and that grace comes to the humble. Fellowship with God comes to those who earnestly walk and work in that way. John Stott has said that every stage in our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. How does pride sneak up on people at your particular stage in life and walk with Christ? What steps are you taking to fight pride with humility? 
I urge you, I urge you to hear to hear the word of God here. This idea of pride is, is very common talk for God's people. It's a very common vernacular. It's a currency that we deal with, we're familiar with every day. We hear it. But often this concept of pride, these ideas of pride, they're so common to us that we overlook them. We say, well, it doesn't apply to me. Well, that's not where I am right now. But what, what we see here in Obadiah is that the most unexpected places... There are little strains, there are little foundations, there are little idols in your life that are erected through the formations of pride in your life. It will be if you are not fighting against pride, if you're not actively fighting against pride, you are likely being overcome by it. And Satan and his minions are very subtle. And so it's important for us, again, to, to, be, to be really immersing ourselves in the Word of God, to be thinking about ourselves primarily as sacrificial servants of God, right? This idea, this doulos idea in the Greek, this idea that, that again, it's a euphemism to say I'm a servant of God. That, that's really not the Word. The Word is slave. <laughs> Why is the word slave? Why is our relationship to Christ described as slave? That's not the only description, thankfully. But it's the only relationship that can sustain the sacrificial aspects of fellowship with Christ. It isn't this kind of covenant in which you can just pull out whenever you want and say, well, you know, it's hot today. Slaves might complain about the weather amongst themselves, but ultimately, they're still going to have to do their work, right? And this is the way to fellowship. We... It seems like we're expending ourselves and our culture says, no, 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 let's think and talk about self-care. Well, let's think and talk about following Christ and sacrificial service and see what the Lord will do for you in that. Are you a friend... Or are you an enemy of God? Redemption will make the difference, of course. And not only are we slaves, the Lord Jesus says something else as well. He says, No longer do I call you servants in John fifteen fifteen, For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. I have called you friends. The Edomites and the Israelites could have enjoyed friendship with God, even in the midst of the power and strength of Babylon brought down upon them. Those disciples on that boat with the Lord Jesus Christ on the Sea of Galilee in the storm could have enjoyed a deeper fellowship with Christ in the midst of the storm. 
They certainly did enjoy a miraculous calming of that storm. But the Lord Jesus Christ didn't commend them for their use of resources when they asked Him about calming the storm. He asked them a very pointed question. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? God sets before us the possibility of friendship with God as we walk with Him in redemption. Let us pray.